Profess Error, the podcast where we celebrate life in academia through the failures we've experienced, not to celebrate the ways in which we fell down, but the ways in which we've gotten back up. In this episode, Brian and I talk about some of the various reasons why academic publications get rejected. We share some stories of uh, how we've made some mistakes, learned some hard lessons, and hopefully you either identify with some or learn some to avoid some of our mistakes. Enjoy. Welcome to Prophet's Error. It's been uh, a little bit, but we are back here uh, for another episode uh, with Brian Franz, as always. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm I'm great. It is good to be back. It feels like we've been away for like six months. I know. Well, it's been the holiday week. season, so there's kind of the in-between in between time and semesters. So yeah, it's good to get back. Yeah. So, uh, so what are we talking about today? Okay, so today is going to be good. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> lots of failure. Lots of lots of failure examples here. Um, so, I, I think we want to talk about um, journal rejection and a part of the the review process that goes along with uh, submitting uh, a journal article and getting some feedback uh, from reviewers on that article. And uh, I want to talk a bit about the process, and then I want to go over some of the sort of common reasons for rejection and some of the, what I would consider fatal flaws uh, in papers that, that commonly uh, will sink your manuscript um, and using some examples. I've got a lot of examples. Yeah. I, I'm sure you do as well. I feel like we're experts on this because we've gotten rejected so many times, right? Well, Which is so many instances where you say, oh, learned a little bit right there. So. And I think we have an interesting perspective. We have the being an author and getting mm-hmm. rejected. And then I think we, we also, both of us have been sort of assistant editors or deputy mm-hmm. editors for, for journals. So we've been on that end of it as well and yeah. seen a lot of reviews that come our way. And so we know sort of what, um, what will sink a paper uh, versus, versus what won't. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I remember when I was starting, I felt completely clueless at this process. Um, now I feel less clueless but I still find myself, even today, still learning sometimes the hard lessons of, oh, that was a bad idea. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to learning from your insights as well and, and sharing the couple that uh, I've picked up along the way. Yeah, 100%. So what happens then with the paper? How does this process work? Maybe if, uh, you know, listeners a grad student or something new to this, what, uh, what's the life cycle of a paper for the review process? Sure. So assuming you've got your paper together, right, to the point where it's ready to be submitted, Um, journals will have pretty much all journals now will have some sort of online journal management system, uh, that'll allow you to upload your manuscripts, any figures, tables, uh, whatever else you have, um, through their system. Uh, during that process, you'll choose things like keywords that associate with your paper. You'll have to specify what kind of paper it is, like a technical paper or case study. Um, and then once you click submit, to the journal based on some of those decisions that you made regarding the type of paper and maybe some of those keywords, it will sort of get routed through their system to uh, perhaps um, one deputy editor or an editor who is sort of overseeing a, a topical range. Uh, so it could, in my case, project delivery papers might go to some editor who does you know, organizational science or, um, uh, or contracting. Uh, versus someone who, you know, a paper on BIM, it might go to someone who does uh, virtual design uh, and construction, right? And who oversees technology. 
Um, and so once it hits that um, editor level or um, even a, a higher up deputy editor or, or a assistant editor, um, at some point they have to open that file up, they look at it, uh, and they have to make a decision right then and there about whether to even allow it to move forward into the uh, review process. Yeah. So they will review it for things like scope. So is it within the scope of the actual journal? If you know, if it's material science, it's physically breaking things, it's maybe not a good fit for a management journal. Um, and so it ends up uh, being considered out of scope. Uh, the English may be really bad. Um, if it's if English isn't the native language of the authors, uh, there may be a lot of grammatical errors or something that just makes it not suitable to send out for uh, review. Um, it could be just missing the typical structure. Uh, it's missing an introduction or it's missing a discussion or it's missing you know something that would, we would typically expect to be in a paper to um, guide readers through uh, what the authors are trying to convey. Um, sometimes if it's an international journal um, and they expect that the the scope of the paper or the scope of the study will in some way relate to that international audience. So if it's too narrow to one specific area or one specific region, it may be deemed as um, not, uh, not really in line with the mission of that journal, which is uh, to appeal to an international audience. So any, if any of those things are true, uh, that editor that is first reviewing your paper may just say, desk reject. Yeah. So they may just reject it right out of hand. And these editors, right? Like this is going to probably be at the editor level, maybe a more senior level faculty, kind of senior associate or full professor, right? At the junior or deputy uh, editor level, probably a little more mid-career, earlier career. And at each level, they're probably going to have a smaller scope and deeper level of expertise, right? So at that first level, like they probably aren't looking at all the minute details of your analysis to see if they would pick a, uh, a fight with exactly the way you draw claims based on the statistical approach used, but they are going to look at, is there any potential way that we could allow this paper in given what we need to be publishing? And so, yeah, you're right. If any of those are a, are a no-go, it stops right there. Um, it's nice because it's fast, but it's, it's yeah. a bummer when you get those because it's, you know, it's a no thanks. This is not, this has no chance in our journal. Yeah, but you'll get it. You will get it quick. Mm -hmm. So that may happen within like a couple weeks. Yeah. Like you may get that back. So if you get a response to, you know, you see something in your email from that journal uh, about that paper, <laughs> that's like, you know, within two weeks of you submitting it, good chance that was just a desk reject. So yeah. don't feel too bad about that. Um, at least you learned it now and not two months from now. So uh, that's the only benefit there. But assuming that you sort of pass that initial screening, um, it will then go to that um, editor to assign uh, reviewers. Uh, and so those are um, other faculty um, who are giving their time. So no one's really paid to be doing these reviews. Um, they're giving their time. Those are faculty who are considered experts or have some expertise in uh, the field uh, of the, the manuscript that you're submitting. Uh, that pool of reviewers you know, could come from the editor's network. So of, of who uh, they know in the in in the in the academic world that does the kind of thing that you're you're proposing uh, to submit as a as an article, um, it may come from previous papers that have been published in that field. They may look at other big authors. Uh, they may look at your own reference list 
of all the, the people that you cite, and they may pull you know a name or two uh, from there. They're trying to look for an objective uh, assessment of your work. That's someone who's you know knowledgeable enough to really decide whether where the where there may be some limitations, where there may be some weaknesses, and whether this is actually suitable uh, for publication. Yeah, and, and and some journals will also allow you to suggest reviewers. Now, I've talked to different editors. Some say I will not take that one because I don't <laughs> trust it. I, I will say, from my experience, especially if it's something I know less, I'll at least look into them. Um, that won't mean I would go to them, but I wouldn't flat reject those as suggestions either. So there's a chance you you may suggest and have one of the the folks you put in as a suggested reviewer as your reviewer. Um, but then from the author's perspective, right, you're not going to know. And at least I've never heard of a journal that would disclose um, who the reviewer is. So even though it could be one of them, you won't know. Their comments won't have their names attached. They shouldn't be writing in a tone that would somehow volunteer the specificity of who they are. So it goes out and you don't know who's, who's getting it. But you're hoping that this process editor to associate editor to reviewers is sufficiently um, aligned with what you're doing that the people that are supposed to have the expertise have it, right? That's sort of right. the, the, the hope, the aim. That's the goal. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so so the, the editor may pick, you know, I mean, I, when I do it, I usually try to pick, I don't know, five potential reviewers <laughs> uh, with the understanding that, you know, at least two of them will probably come back to me and say, you know, I'm busy, I'm already reviewing two other papers, or I can't do this right now, I'm traveling. And so I, I, you get a couple declines um, with the ultimate goal of, of getting two to three um, folks that accept uh, the invite to review your paper. Uh, and they'll actually follow through on it. So uh, sometimes, sometimes academics agree to do things, they get busy and, and they, um, you know, maybe late on something or have to back out of that review. Um, so usually I, I find that inviting about five or maybe inviting three and keeping a couple backups um, is is usually pretty safe. Um, So ultimately, uh, those folks agree to review it, they can log into the system and they can view your everything that you uploaded, your manuscript, any tables, figures, whatever. Uh, And then, you know, they usually have about a month to review, like I've seen 20 to 20 days or so, 21 days um, to to, to a month uh, to actually review, provide comments back in the system. Uh, Those once those comments are back, um, editors get notifications that all the reviews are complete. Um, they'll log back into the system, look at your reviews, um, and some, some, sometimes you got to be a little bit critical. So the editor's hopefully being um, critical of the reviews as well, and you know making sure that um, they their the comments are fair. Uh, ultimately, the the reviewers will recommend you know revise, accept, or decline. Um, and then the editor has the final decision. They may add some of their own comments or suggestions, um, and then they will send those reviews back to you. Yeah. I feel like that's also a good moment where they'll sometimes give you a summary statement, almost like back when we were talking about writing proposals for funding, they'll sometimes give you a summary statement of the evaluations. And sometimes that doesn't do a whole lot of good, but sometimes I found that to be helpful to say, okay, I got a whole you know, page yeah. and a half of feedback, but what's really the concern? And sometimes right. it's really a lot of little stuff that's not a deal breaker, um, but there's one item that really needs yeah. to be addressed. And so I, I find that that can be helpful in that process. Yeah, and so that's the editor sort of parsing through yeah. all of those comments and saying, okay, here's the really big one that if you don't fix, I can't see it being published kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, so that can be very helpful. 
So then it goes to the editor and then goes back to you. And this whole process that you've just defined, right, that could be months in some journals, right? Like, I don't think that's that's crazy. Um, when it gets more than three and four months, I find myself getting uh, a little antsy to get feedback back. But it does happen. And there are some yeah. journals that are just not as quick. And if they need to go to the top faculty in the world to review it, well, yeah. they're busy. So it's it's going to be a slow go. Um, but that process goes on. You get your feedback. Do we want to talk about that in some of those different phases then? What are some of the, the common reasons that we've seen that our papers get rejected or that we've had to be in the position to reject others um, in those various uh, processes? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that those I consider kind of, you know, fatal flaws, a lot yeah. of them. But if, if you have one of these uh, issues uh, attributed to your paper, then, you know, they have good grounds to reject. Yeah. Right. It doesn't always result in a rejection. Like sometimes you can, you can skate by if there's a, a serious issue that's observed, but they think you can fix it like within the scope of a revision. Sometimes it's too big of a, an issue. It requires basically a rewrite and they just, you know, don't, it's not suitable to do that through a revision process. You're better off just yeah. rejecting it. And then they, you can submit again or something. Yeah, I mean, it almost seems disingenuous if you're saying you need new data to revise. I mean, let's just 100%. do a new study at that point. So. Right. All right. So we've talked a little bit about some of the desk reject items. Why don't we maybe put some faces on this and talk about some of our experiences there, right? So this is the desk reject, just reminder for reviewer. We're talking at this point, an editor level, they see it. Um, it doesn't even go to reviewers because they're saying there's something so flawed that it doesn't matter what a reviewer would say. There's no way we could accept it in its exact current submission form. So what are some of the, the you know, issues or problems you've experienced in yours, Brian? I've never gotten anything desk reject. What are you talking about? Really? I've gotten yeah. a bunch. Are you kidding me? Sure. Desk rejected? Sure. Oh, man. No, it's never happened. Sorry. Really? <laughs> I didn't know you were going to ask that. <laughs> So I, I have. So I, I'll say a, a, a good example of that. I've, I've frequent, not frequently, but occasionally had ones where to be submitted as the wrong paper type. When you oh. look at different types of papers in journals, um, one of the things that can be confusing is the type of paper. So they've got often technical papers, often case studies sometimes forum papers. Um, there's a number of different styles. I've sometimes heard method papers, which are just extractions of method-based portions of the papers. So there's a number of different types of papers. Some of where the confusion can come in is some journals will call a case study paper, for example. Um, they'll define it in a way that doesn't align with what researchers might call case study research, right? Case study research is typically some type of an exploration of a naturally occurring context, and I want to explore something about this naturally occurring context, that case, and I want to study. Um, and so there'll be some studies we've done where that's not what I'm doing. I'm doing something that's a simulation or it's some uh, intervention that I'm, I'm testing on a large uh, sample of, of people or something like that. Um, and I'll occasionally get the feedback, this is a case study paper. It's a bummer. It's, it is rejected when I submit it as a technical mm -hmm. paper. But in terms of making sense of it, that one's at least a pretty quick turnaround, right? That's mm -hmm. a matter of, okay, that one, um, we just resubmit it in a different form. Uh, the other one I'll say that I would call a desk reject. I don't know if you would call it this the same way. Sometimes I will have papers that are relevant to a given domain but they will borrow from methodological strategies from other domains, right? So it might be um, a technology paper, 
But the analysis approach we're going to do is from a different domain because the nature of the data requires learning from others' methods, something like that. Um, and so one of the things I'll often do is I'll email the editor and I'll say, here's the abstract. You know, is this something that would be potentially within the scope of your journal? And sometimes you get them to say no. You know, And so that one, I guess I would call a desk reject because it's basically the same feedback. Um, but it's just a, yeah, we like half of it, but our, our readers and reviewers won't, won't know the methodology or whatever the situation may be. Um, and it'll get rejected in that hmm. regard as well. I feel like I dodged a bullet then with this. Yeah, I can't believe you've never gotten one desk reject. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, are you I've taking? Never you, maybe you're not taking enough shots here. I feel like I feel that, like that might taking, be the real. Yeah, yeah that might be the, I'm too. Uh, I'm too careful. I'm too methodical with it. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good point. So, I've gotten other rejections that have actually gone through review. So in that case, I've wasted more of my time than you have here. Well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, that's true, actually. I mean, we're saying it a little bit, you know, in a snarky manner, but the desk reject, if you're going to get a rejection, that's the way to get it. If, if you had some kind of choice at it, fail fast, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes you'll fail in the uh, full full reviews and you get really good feedback, but sometimes you don't. And then that's six months you, you just lost, you know, and especially if it's, you know, if you're listening and you're a grad student and it's a dissertation on the line, six months feels like a long time. Yeah, yeah. You know? So some of the things we talked about, just to sort of get back to the, the desk yeah, yeah. reject possibilities, right? If it's out of scope, which some of that is a little bit like the example I talked about, um, poor use of language or excessive uh, grammatical errors. Um, I haven't hit that issue as an author, but I've seen that occasionally as an editor. And so mm -hmm. I, I have had to step in sometimes in that um, side as an editor. Uh, missing expected structure. I don't know if this really counts as a desk reject, um, but I'm going to group it there for the sake of storytelling. Um, so I've often had this issue internally in my team, right? So if I'm working with um, grad students, collaborators, whoever, um, sometimes I'll work with people that are really good writers and communicate really well and have great ideas. But if it's written not in a structure that I'm kind of expecting, a typical sort of paper mm -hmm. structure, intro methodology, or intro background methodology, results conclusion, um, I'll sometimes sort of say, can we take the same idea and put it in that form? Just because yeah. it's so common yeah. that you're going to get yeah. the pushback from the, yeah. the reviewers, I find myself saying, I'll be kind of the, the pseudo editor at this point, just to say, let's take all of this great content, but repackage it in more of that sometimes I'll say the term sort of surgically precise and almost mm. sterile manner, um, not because it's better, but because it's more understood. And that piece of it, that it's more expected by the reviewer, will, I think, make it more uh, palatable. So that's yeah, one I, mean, I often, yeah. Yeah, I've gotten comments like that. They just haven't been uh, uh, grounds for rejection right away. Mm. Um, but I, I've, I mean, I remember when I, when I first started, you know, graduate school when I was first writing um, academically, um, which I was something that was new to me at the time. Um, and I thought it was being clever of, oh, well, this will tell the story better mm -hmm. if I do it in this order. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I, literature, why does this need to be here? Let's, right. let's push that down later or something. Cause it, it gets in the way of the, the message that yeah. I was, the story that I was trying to tell with this, with this paper. And I just remember getting scathing feedback of yeah. like why, why is everything out of order the literature review comes too late it needs to be soon and it's like oh okay i didn't realize that there's a certain ebb and flow to these documents that reviewers expect and deviating too much from it trying to get too cute 
with the with the format and the organization uh, was quite a negative. <laughs> it's funny. I, so I, I didn't. I I had that issue, but the 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 bearer of bad news was more of like my advisor, or whoever, when I was starting out. You know, someone more at more an internal level. Um, and initially, I remember not liking that because I remember thinking, "Well, I want to communicate however I want." Right, right, right. But yeah. now that I'm kind of in the habit of that structure, I appreciate it. I love it. <laughs> I love I it. I love too. it because I know what I'm reading from others. <laughs> yeah. I know how I'm communicating. I focus all my yeah. time on the underlying ideas and none of yep. it on the order. Yeah. Or con- like I just, I understand yeah. there's a structure to be expected. So now I love it. Actually, yeah, I agree. No, I was totally wrong. Like right. when I came in, I thought, oh, oh, with these academics, I don't know what the hell they're doing. Here's a better way of telling this story. Sure. Right. And now I'm like, oh no, they knew what they were doing. And that's I, why they've been doing it this way for so long. Like it's just better. You know, this might be an unfair stereotype, but since I'm the, I'm the, the victim of this stereotype, I, I feel like I can probably, I can perhaps say it. I wonder if part of this issue is that, you know, in both of our cases, you know, we happen to be native English speakers, but we're also native American speakers. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of wondering if part of that is a uh, conceptualization through the use of this language is not difficult for us. And the problem then with that is we think, oh, I'll just write it however I want, Mm -hmm. not thinking about the receiver of that information, um, where I actually sometimes think this can be a strength that sometimes non-native speakers have is because they just say, okay, fine, I'll just lock into this process. Mm-hmm. That may actually support you more than someone like me when I was in grad school thinking, I'll just write it however. Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of a cha- an odd challenge in a way that you can have if, if you are falsely confident in your use of the language because you've spoken right. it and the structure is not supporting what you're needing to communicate. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I was trying to always write it as if it were like almost a creative writing assignment. And that's yeah. just not, I mean, it, it's each section is its own kind of independent yeah. sort of block. Agreed. And so, you know, you can treat, you have to reference other sections, like it all needs to tie together in the end. But, you know, there can be some hard breaks between sections. Like it doesn't need to smoothly transition into, you know, this methodology. If I end on, you know, a gap and a point of departure, I can move right into the methodology. I don't need to sort of write a paragraph to get from point of departure to methodology. It's just not needed. It's extra fluff. Doesn't contribute to anything. Yeah, I agree. I I also think, I mean, within that structure too, that they have, it's not creative writing. And you're you're right to bring that up because a lot of us make that mistake initially. I would put myself into that category. But I also think like once you lock into the structure, it enables you to focus on how you want to be, maybe creative is the wrong word, but strategic, which still involves some level of creativity. Which points are worthy of bringing up? Which points do I not need to bring up? Because it's going to confuse a reader. I'm going to set them up for expecting this kind of study, which really doesn't relate to this paper. Maybe it relates to the next paper that results from this, but not this paper, whatever. Um, And so there again, yeah, I I feel like it still enables a lot of creativity and, and... insight and critical thinking and that kind of thing but just yeah the structure um yeah i think you gotta gotta lock into it the other thing i would say on this by the way um i gave an example a minute ago of the structure i typically follow intro literature review methodology results conclusion um that may apply to a lot of journals one thing that i've found to be helpful though if i'm going to apply to a journal that i haven't read as much i haven't uh, published in as much i have a little less experience with go look at some of the papers that have been published because there are some journals that take 
sort of subtle nuanced approaches to this structure and i think that can be a good strategy that um especially early on i didn't do and you know can be just lead to challenges yeah no so i think what we're describing here is kind of a larger part of a larger fatal flaw which is about the focus of the paper yeah right when i tend to write things as creative i'm taking away from uh what really I really need to focus on, yeah. which is the study results that I'm presenting and setting up those results appropriately. And I think as a graduate student, you know, one of my my challenges, and it's it's tempting for everyone as a graduate student because you spend you know years doing um, you know one study, is you really want to tell your entire story, like your entire journey. Mm-hmm. Like I started here and then I did this and it didn't quite work out. So then I had to switch to something else. And then I ultimately, you know, went with this analysis method and this was significant, but this wasn't, which was surprising. So then I had to go collect more data and then I did the analysis again and it's still not significant. So maybe it is important. And so it's, you tell this entire, (laughs) (laughs) that's not right. No. And then you're like, you know, the reviewers are looking at that saying, wait, what? Yeah, exactly. Like they're trying to follow this, this long journey that you went on. And especially if you're not telling it in a way that follows the traditional paper format, then it is super confusing. And I, you can just get a reject if people just say, you know, there's a lot of irrelevant information in here. Yeah. There's no focus. It's just not ready for publication. And that can be reason for rejection. Yeah. And so, sometimes you'll get, yeah, you're right, by the way. So, so we're talking sort of the, the macro level Sometimes, too, you'll get it through the process to the point where it gets actual feedback. But then because of all those breadcrumbs you've dropped that you may not ever yeah. get to because they're just sort of ancillary details that don't matter to the outcome, now you're opening up yourself to feedback and critique yeah. and why didn't you justify that and why did you – and all of this stuff that – the the feedback is sort of um, – I don't want to say irrelevant. It's just irrelevant to what the paper should have been. But because right. you didn't submit what the paper should have been, they've given you kind of out of scope feedback, and now right. you know you're setting yourself up for a unanswerable feedback. Right. So your, your long story where you said you did interviews yeah. and you collected data, but then you don't describe how the interviews were used or what what you did with that data is just going to raise so many questions. Not only are they going to say this is irrelevant to the actual study, which seems to be focused on maybe the quantitative side. But now they're going to say, why are you introducing this theme here, this, this methodological yeah. form of data collection when you, when you aren't presenting it anywhere? And they're going to ask, where are the results to that? And it's just going to, op- it's going to chain a bunch of other comments. Yeah, like I've definitely made this mistake, especially early on. Um, I've made this mistake. And, and now one of the roles I often play is I'll tell you know newer writers that I'm working with, I want you to give me less. I want less breadth and more depth. And so much of it is from what you're talking about here, which on its surface, maybe a listener, I don't know, might, might feel like that's an odd statement because I'm asking for less and I'm somehow saying that'll be better quality. But the issue here is by presenting those extra features, I'm like any other reviewer, I'm trying to understand, but oftentimes I'll get halfway through a paper and I'll have to send it back to the student and say, look, I'm sorry, I'm trying to read this thing. I don't know where we're going with this and I'm just lost, right? Yeah. And so let's cut this out. What's what's kind of the actual new knowledge? Um, and yeah, I think that's super important. What's the contribution of the paper? Yeah. Everything needs to um, support that. I think we've used in the past sort of the analogy of a movie. Um, that was for, mm-hmm. I think, a proposal, but I, I think it, it, it still hold, has uh, validity for this, right? If the movie is 
horror story, then it needs to align with horror story, not romantic comedy or whatever right. the thing is that would be the other ancillary details that you've got. It's all got to be in service of that message. And maybe you have too much data. And if you do, that's a yeah. great problem. It's still a real problem, but it's a great problem. Yeah. Make a second paper with the other right. data, but keep this one paper just focused on its thing. Yep. Yeah. Very common form of rejection. So these are kind of all of the, the big picture um, ones that we've talked about. Any other sort of big picture desk reject kind of, it doesn't even get feedback um Oh, reasons. desk reject. No, I, we kind of transitioned that. Some yeah. of these were, we were talking about review comments. Well, and you're right. Because some of those, if it gets past the desk reject, right, yeah. you, can you, can get those com- you can still get those comments. Yeah. yeah. So let's get in then to, to some of the more detailed ones. And maybe I'll, I'll ask my favorite question then. Have you gotten rejected at this point in the process? Yes, 100%. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't feel quite yeah, as yeah, No problem. No problem. No problems here. Okay. Um, you know, I, I've... It's funny because there's some commonalities in the rejections. Like when I look back at the the rejections that I've gotten, um, they do tend to uh, have the same kind of issue. Hmm. Um, And it primarily, part of it is contribution, um, but a lot of it stems, if I do like a five why on like, you know, why are they not getting the contribution that that I'm showing? It really comes down to lack of problem definition. And um, me focusing maybe more on the uh, methodology or, or how I'm how I'm actually going about you know running the analysis or solving something or providing some you know you know contribution, um, but not really setting it up, yeah. not really saying you know why this is important, why should anyone care about this research, um, and, and that can be a fundamental. Uh, kind of mismatch because if you set up the paper and it see this is kind of your your horror, horror movie analogy if i set up the paper uh to be more methodological where i am trying or applying a new methodology to analyze some data in in this field um, that hasn't been done before then the contribution feels as if it should be also methodological Right. Because you are setting it up as this is new. So the contribution has to be related to that methodology. Okay. But oftentimes I try to do a little bit of both Mm -hmm. where I say this is some new methodology or methodology applied here, but it's also solving some problem in industry. Right. And so then if you don't follow through with all of that and there's a mismatch between, you know, the methodology and the contribution versus a practical problem that's being solved and then the value of that solution to industry i've gotten that comment a lot um and i think it all comes down to problem definition i think that i I just didn't do as good a job as i thought in setting up why i was doing what we were doing in the paper yeah i would say almost an identical uh reason for mine it's it's different it manifests itself differently Mm -hmm. because we have different types of research what foci i guess is the plural um, but yeah, I, I, I do the same thing. Part of the value, so I do more technology research, you do more process research. Um, it feels like part of the value in defining the problem is you've kind of defined what success would look like or what a conclusion might look like, right? And in that example, you just said, 
is the problem we don't know how to address this or is the problem we don't know the answer to this, right? Because that's kind of two very different conclusions. If we don't know how, your methodological approach that you've defined would be great. That's here's a here's a how we might address this. But if we don't know the answer to it, that's a little bit of it. I mean, you still need some methodology, but but give me enough to just illustrate how you could answer the what it is rather than the the how do we solve it. And I sometimes fall into that trap too because I think at times... We need both. We don't, we don't right. know either of them. And so then you say, well, what do I do? I got to cover my bases. But similar to where we talked about in the last thread of discussion, well, you cover too much, you, you sacrifice right. depth for breadth, and then it's it's a no-go. Yeah, it, it's so the example that, you know, get specific now. So one of the examples, right, was, um, you know, the, the methodological contribution or problem that, that needs to be solved might be something like how to measure a specific sure. condition, right? And there's many different ways you could do that. And perhaps you're, you're trying a few and deciding which one is the best, right? Versus a study that was trying to say, okay, how is that condition related to some outcome? Yeah. Right. So that one, the second one is trying to, you know, almost do a, a, a causal type relationship mm-hmm. and show me that um, you know, having one condition results in some outcome. That's useful. It answers a question that we maybe didn't know before, right? Of does that that condition actually you know, change the outcome of a project? Um, but the other one is purely methodological. How do we measure something? Uh, and that's a very different study and a very different contribution. Uh, be- and so if you try to mix those, I mean, that's, I just, it ends up, it ends up badly. And I still do it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe this is a good point to sort of pause then and, and interject. And, and part of the issue here, I would imagine as a listener, this is how it would affect me anyway. When we talk about a lot of these points in the abstract, right? Well, make sure it's within scope. Make sure you focus on one thing. Don't talk about other points. Like when, when we say a lot of these points in the abstract, they sound like, yeah, of course, anyone <laughs> would do that, right? And they do make sense in the abstract. But when you're in the midst of writing a paper, you don't have that benefit of hindsight. So you're going through it and you're thinking about, I don't know, the six different directions this could offer contribution mm-hmm. or the bigger picture NSF project that this is going to support or whatever it is that you're you're thinking about more broadly. And that focus is a little harder to do in the, in that process. So I think that's part of why this becomes so challenging. And as much as it hurts to get rejection, this is where sometimes a really good rejection is really helpful because it yeah. will shine a crystal clear light on, oh, I see why this is dumb, right? Like we can laugh at ourselves in the hindsight because yeah. you'll say, yeah, this was just a really bad um, alignment or, or whatever with what I needed to do. And sometimes that reject helps to shine a light on it. Yeah, rejections are valuable, even though they feel bad. Yeah. I'll talk about a, a, another one that I've, I've seen that has uh, related to some of my work and relates to the contributions, right? Mm-hmm. And whether they're sort of uh, obvious or sometimes one of the, the terms I'll talk about is what are the counterintuitive findings? Like what are the things that you say, oh, we didn't know that? They kind of make you pause and say, that's intriguing. Um, I've sometimes seen either papers that are submitted or at least papers that are internally worked on in, in my group um, where we'll, we'll do a study and we'll present on the research and I'll find myself at the end of the paper saying, what is it we learned from this? And this is something that I think I struggled with initially. I think some students can struggle with it initially. And I think if a listener struggles with it, they can expect a reject. You've got conclusions and contributions and they're 
related, but not one and the same. And I often think of conclusions as kind of, uh, what did we learn? And maybe contributions as what do we do with this, right? Like what, what's, how, how is the broader body of researchers benefited from this? Uh, I think sometimes we'll do research where we'll collect a lot of data and maybe don't spend enough time either looking at it or enough time actually just thinking about it. Thinking, okay, what's the novelty here? Or comparing it to findings that have been uh, done elsewhere. And it, it's sort of like the conclusions can look like a shortened version of here's the results. I get why that happens, but I often think the conclusion and certainly the contribution need to highlight the what did we really learn? And sometimes where I find value to help with this process is to say, what did we learn through this work that we didn't know before we started? Right? Like if something was just obvious beforehand, then we didn't really learn that through this work. We might have validated it or proven it or observed yet again. And, and, and maybe in some ways there can be some subtle value to that. But in terms of like archival value that's worthy of publication, we kind of need to hit on what's the counterintuitive findings. Uh, I've sometimes either rejected like internally in my group or probably had instances, like I can't think of any, but probably had instances where I submitted papers where reviewers would say, yeah, this isn't really new. It's all kind of intuitive content. Um, and this is where I think it can be really helpful to highlight, even if a lot of the results were intuitive, what's the element of it that wasn't? And then the follow-up part, the conclusion contribution that I've been talking about, what do we do with this? Um, yeah. I, I, a colleague of mine uh, once gave me a suggestion that I thought was brilliant. Um, the comment that she said was essentially for the contribution, think, how will others cite your work? Like, what is the tidbit that they'll take to say, you know, whatever, whoever air at all said, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and that's a piece that I've sometimes found to be helpful. I think I struggled with that early in, in my career a lot as a grad student. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten comments around that uh, as well. Usually they take the form of no novelty or you know, whatever people want to say of, of, you know, there's nothing, you know, new here where it seems confirmatory. Um, typically when that's happened to me, uh, it's because again, I did not do a very good job of identifying, um, the, the research gap yeah. or, you know, where, what we really didn't know, um, or, you know, in what way that prior work was in some way limited, perhaps by the way that they did the work, um, or perhaps by, you know, some assumptions that they made, um, where, where I'm maybe challenging those assumptions or changing those assumptions. Um, and so even though I maybe came to a similar conclusion as to what prior studies have had, the fact that, you know, it is still true, even when changing some of those assumptions um, is sort of the novelty or the contribution portion to it. So I think being able to go back and, and this is where doing a good literature review, I'll say this all the time, so important. it's really important, yeah, so important. Um, to parse out where, you know, where you're going to fit in so that people don't just come back and say, well, no novelty, reject. It's funny too, because I've had that happen a, uh, a lot. Either Either it leads to a flat reject or like a major revisions kind of comment. I've, I've gotten that comment. There's no novelty. You didn't cite the literature I wanted you to cite, which maybe was the reviewer's paper. Who knows? Um, but whatever. I got that comment a lot. I have never had an instance where it's proven to be true that there's no novelty. <laughs> but in, but conversely, in almost every instance, it's been a shining a light on, yeah. oh, I could have done a better job of explaining where there's difference, yeah. right? Like, 
even even as a grad student, I don't know, I feel like you always have that sinking feeling sometime early in the grad process where you want to do some study and you see some other paper that you're like, oh no, that's exactly what I wanted to do. It's probably not, right? There's right. so many things. You, it's probably not exactly what you were going to do. But to what you just said, I feel like so critical, especially for newer authors out there. Don't just say, this person did this, this person did this, this person yeah. did this in your lit review. Actually dive in to identify the ones that are really close. What are those nuanced differences? And why do those merit further investigation? Because I think that helps to avoid those comments if you clearly delineate. And you bring it up right at the end. Right at the beginning. The yeah. discussion, and then you bring it up in That's the right. contributions. You say, prior work did this. However, you know, now I'm adding X, Y, and Z, or I'm... I'm changing some assumptions and this is what I found. Yeah. So, yeah. So I've definitely had that one. That one I actually find to be, it can be anyway, a helpful feedback for clarifying that. Um, Yeah. uh, All right. Other examples that we've got, any other uh, good ones that you've gotten from the review process that have led to uh, rejections? Um, So maybe this is, maybe goes back to something you had said um, earlier about, you know, the case study and the technical paper. I just, thought of it as we were talking um but a paper you know in order to get published you know has to kind of do one of two things it has to either contribute to theory and and build or modify existing theories or there has to be some kind of numbers to it so it has to be some has some kind of quantifiable analysis and experiment some data analysis whatever it might be so you have to at least do one of those things otherwise you're going to get rejected and it's going to say, this is not research. Um, and so, I, you know, I remember some of the uh, earlier papers that I was writing that were primarily case-based, like it was case study-based uh, research. And uh, because of the case study, um, there had to be reasons for, you know, why you were choosing certain cases and why these specific projects were chosen, you know, to investigate. So there had to be some sort of underlying theory uh, that you were investigating and that could help justify why these two or three cases were critical to help understanding that theory and further developing it. Right. Um, and so I just remember getting a lot of comments very early when, you know, I didn't know what kind of paper I was writing, Mm -hmm. like it was a case study. So really it should have been more on the theory side, but I, I wanted to present numbers with the case study. Like I wanted to present, cost growth and schedule and some metrics associated with the case studies and it confused the reviewers because it tried to be both and so it sort of did both poorly instead of just doing one really well so knowing like what kind of paper you're writing and making sure that you actually it actually is research (laughs) so you're at least doing something with theory and at least or, or doing something with numbers um is is really important because those were just some painful major revisions yeah, or, or or if it's not, and it's something you just feel is necessary to put out there, don't don't try to get it into those. Then do a forum paper or a white paper, like some other venue that's not purporting to be research then. Right, just having ideas and writing a paper about ideas is not necessarily research, unless you're right. in some way linking it back to theory or building on on existing theory. Um, and so, I mean, as a, as a you know, assistant editor, and I've seen some of those come through where I, I read through those papers. Um, and actually, I guess this might be another kind of desk reject where I, I look through it and there's actually no research there. 
Mm. Like they, they, they've summarized some things or, you know, there's some like descriptive statistics where there's some percentage reporting, but there's actually not an analysis that's done. Um, and so it's, it's very hard to classify those as publishable research. It's hard to learn something from them when, when there's nothing there from the theory side, but then there's also nothing there from the, you know, analysis side, the quantitative side. And, and you've had desk, you've, you've had to be the rejector of some of those. Huh. I mean, I it feels I've bad. Had that. Yeah, it would. Sure. It feels bad because like, you know, Clearly, some, they put some effort into it. Usually it comes from, um, you know, I'm sure you've seen papers where academics, you know, pair up with maybe some industry members mm. um, as authors, right? And so it tends to be more those where I think, you know, where it may be led by an industry member who's not as familiar with all the formatting stuff that we're talking about, all the sort of expectations that reviewers are going to have when they're looking at papers. And so they may have some good, interesting data there. It's not just not well analyzed to the point where you know it actually classifies as research where we can actually learn something from it yeah yeah i mean i think that that is definitely a challenge i actually think that can be good for research to partner with uh industry mm -hmm. a lot of times but you're right in terms of the outputs of those works oftentimes i think you know, industry cares about does something work or they care that it works and we care how or why it works right. so they may even be right in some of their claims yeah. but if oh, it's perfect. not if it's not articulated in a way um in that document that illustrates why they can be confident in those then yeah you're right so uh one other thing that i've uh, seen um i think more in my case as the editor than as the writer than as the author is when you have a paper um, that might do good research, but is highly focused in one area. Um, so I think you would leave this in your list as well, Brian, yep. of, of examples. I've sometimes seen it where they'll look at, like I do a lot of technology work, technology in one uh, region. Now that in and of itself, I don't think is problematic. I actually think that can be beneficial to contextualize why adoption or rejection of a technology in a region isn't, isn't working or identifying factors or something like that. That can be beneficial. But if there's a situation in the paper where the tie of these observations within one context is not made to the broader either national audience, global audience, a, a bigger pool of why that localized study offers value in a more uh, broad uh, environment, that's kind of not going to be a good paper. I, I've mm -hmm. seen ones where I've had to kind of just say, look, this isn't a good fit, not because it's not good work, but there's there's no there's nothing we can learn from it unless right. you happen to be on this exact kind of project or location or whatever the, the specific focus was. Yeah, I mean, or it's just a group of researchers that have a very narrow, very specialized field of work. Mm. And there's maybe like, I don't know, you know, I, I can count them on, you know, one hand number of people that do the same kind of work. Yeah. Then when with no explanation of, you know, how this would be used by anyone else or for anything else, it just is exceedingly narrow. Yeah. So it's basically being published for peers. <laughs> so it's basically being published for those five people that, that do work in that field. And so it can be hard in some of these larger journals to, you know, make that appealing to the readership. Yeah. And so, you know, trying to broaden it out maybe at the end. So even though it's very, very narrow, you know, talk about some of the context and how it could be used in other fields. I mean, ways of broadening it could help lower the chances of rejection, I think. 
Yeah, but because if, if it really is that small of a field, the chance that you're going to get a reviewer or, or multiple right. reviewers that happen to be in that tiny subset of researchers is very low. So yeah, I definitely make it matter to, to more individuals. Which again, I think goes back to a theme that you said in a lot of years, identify the problem. Right? I tell this with students with technology, oh, start with the problem. Start with defining that really well because if you do and it is genuinely problematic, whatever the thing is that's motivating this, it's pretty hard for anyone who has any familiarity with the field to say that's not a problem. Safety is not a problem or inefficiency is not a problem or waste is not or whatever. Um, you know, then it becomes, okay, I understand the lens you're looking at. And even if the finding is pretty specific, if you can tie it back to that bigger problem in some mm-hmm meaningful way then at least you've got a chance yeah and i mean i found that the problem and i mean now too often you know i know we we move ahead with studies maybe that that don't have full problem to it but um you know when we're writing about it um the, the clearer that you can be with the problem uh really will set up the rest of it it'll make the rest of it flow so much better because you've got this nice clear problem and every then decision that you make with respect to your rationale for why you chose this sample or why you chose this analysis method all sort of flow back to that problem. They're all in service of, you know, addressing that problem. And it's so much easier to link everything together and have a clear, consistent rationale when you have that nice, crisply defined problem. I agree. So this comment that I'm going to bring up might be more to my niche of technology researchers, but I don't know, maybe this applies more broadly. I think when you define a problem, though, the one thing that is an important pitfall to avoid is don't uh, define a problem that's based on a circular logic, right? So circular logic is saying, the reason I did something is because I wanted to do that thing, right? I've just, I've just said the same thing twice. I haven't explained why. So with something like technology research, the, the motivation to study whatever, cell phones or whatever the technology is, um, the motivation to study cell phones should not be because we haven't studied cell phones enough, so I want to study <laughs> cell phones. That's a very circular logic. Yeah. Part of the issue there is if a reviewer's not sold that we need to study more cell phones, you saying we haven't studied cell phones enough is not a good justification. If you can tie it back to a more, I guess a word I like to say is undeniable problem, something that's actually negatively impacting us, right? Our industry is not delivering an infrastructure that the world needs where people are getting hurt or losing lives in our industry because we're making bad decisions about safety. We're wasting money, uh, which is leading to less productivity. We're losing workforce, something that that ties it back to something that, that matters. That's the kind of problem you want. If you find yourself in a bit of a circular logic problem, I think you'll still hit a lot of the issues we've talked about, even if you think, well, I've defined this well. The, the, the rationale for why you're doing whatever you're doing should be tied to something bigger than your work, more more meaningful than just whatever technology or process or workflow or method you're looking to do. It should be something more fundamental, more, more broad. Yeah, agree. Why don't we shift? Well, let me pause. Are there other items that you and other types of rejections that you want to cover? I, I'd, I guess I'd like to get into what do you do? Not if, but when you yeah, get rejected. Yeah, yeah. No, those, those are the big ones. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with our discussion so far. So since I'm the only one that's gotten te- desk rejects, maybe I'll talk about what I do. Wait, yes, wait, I, I call, I've sort of taken that loosely because some I've called sort of internal desk rejects or not formalized desk rejects. But it's the same idea, right? So in those where you fail fast, um, in terms of what you do, 
it may actually still be that you don't have to do anything to the paper. The paper's good, but the venue, the journal you targeted was not, right? It could also be like the situations we talked about. The paper's actually good. You just haven't tied it to a bigger problem. So now it's probably like an intro and, and maybe discussion conclusion kind of modification. I can leave a lot of what I've actually done in the meat of the paper, but the what this means and what we do with it is something, okay, I need to revisit that part. Um, I've typically found that the desk reject comments, um, while it's a bummer to get rejected, are actually super useful. I, I, I don't know that I can think of an instance where I got a desk reject where I said, well, there's nothing I can do with this uh, in terms of feedback, either changing the venue where I submit, changing some of the sections, modifying some of the content in the paper. That I found to be really useful almost all the time. Sometimes when I get reviewer feedback, it's not always as useful. So um, let's go through <laughs> some of the strategies there. So how, how do, you, like, do you have strategies in mind for how you make use of the feedback you get or say... Thanks, but no thanks. I can't do anything with this. Um, yeah. So, okay. So, yeah, this is tricky. Um, so, I, I look at it from a perspective of, like you said, what can be changed, what can't be changed, right? That That's one dimension uh, to it. But I sort of look at it in terms of, I read over everything first because I, I'm trying to, sometimes reviewers say something, but they mean something else. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and so... I want to see whether it's it's all coming down to some common thing where, yes, I didn't define the problem correctly, or you know, I said something in the in the methodology section that was was confusing and triggered a whole series of of comments after that. Where you know, had I written it a little bit differently, then you know, those comments would have gone away. So I look for some common themes amongst the comments to see where. I really need to put some more effort into the paper. Yeah, and you, like you, you said an important, the, or at least I took an important detail from that, I think, in what you said. Sometimes what you do to the paper is is removing. It's addition through subtraction, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes if you get those comments, you say, why are they saying this? It's because you dropped a breadcrumb somewhere yeah. back in the intro that would lead them to think, oh, I'm going to get this type of movie yeah. outcome out of this, to use our movie analogy. Yeah. You never touched on that. That may, again, that may be relevant to your broader funded study through the NSF or, or some funding organization. But if that's not in this paper, that's not part yeah. of this. So yeah, that's a good point. So understanding which are suggestions yeah. and which ones are sort of expected to fix, uh, those kind of comments are, are important because some reviewers will say, oh, well, you, you may want to consider updating this figure with something, or I would suggest blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Versus others will say, you need to rerun this, or, or you need to report this statistic, or something like that, which those are, are very, I take those very literally. Yeah. Like these are, I, I have to do that. Versus the suggestions, I say, I need to acknowledge them. Um, I need to at least respond to it in some way. But ultimately, I may not be making a drastic change yeah. if it ultimately doesn't if, if it doesn't seem like it's needed to address whatever the core concern is. Those make a lot of sense. Those are very clear cut. Sometimes they're not, though. And sometimes I feel like the comments are a little trickier. Mm -hmm. um, for example, I'll get comments that'll sometimes say things like, uh, the authors don't explain why they're doing this, or they don't cite literature. They don't, something about the reviewer felt that it was not clear why we did something, mm -hmm. right? And as you go through that, 
where I sometimes struggle is I'll sometimes read that comment and I'll say, I did talk about that. In this paragraph, I talked about it. But the issue I have here is similar to what we talked about way back when in the proposal um, example. I think I've written it. If two reviewers say, I didn't see it, I almost need to get my ego out of the way and say, oh, I'm wrong. What I thought was so great and what I thought I did right, I was wrong. Take the loss, rewrite it in a way that's harder to miss or or whatever. Somehow be willing to take that feedback and say, Mm -hmm. I can be better on this. Other times, however, you'll get feedback where the the authors will say, or the reviewers will say, you know, the authors didn't explain this or they, they didn't do this thing right or they'll give some critique and there, what they're illustrating is, I actually don't understand the concepts I'm being asked to mm. review. And now, if I were to just say, oh, I'll acquiesce to your changes, sure, I'll modify, I'll, t- I'll change these things. I actually am making it worse because I'm changing mm. it based on a misunderstanding. That is a little less clear cut, I think, than the examples that you've given sure. um, and can get a little bit tougher because I think you have to try to look at it as transparent and bluntly honest with yourself of could I potentially be better at whatever they're suggesting without compromising the integrity of the study? Because sometimes they won't know as much as you, even if they're the expert reviewers that we've gone to, and they'll suggest something that would make it worse if you followed it. And other times, and I'm acknowledging I've done this too, my own sense of, of confidence in my work gets in the way. And I'll say, I already talked about this. I don't need to update that. Well, then I'm going to take a couple more rejections until I realize I could be a lot better than what I said I've already done. I mean, so that's tricky, though. So yeah. if you don't agree with them and basically you think changing it will is worse because you you know perhaps the material um, better than the reviewer, then how do you respond to that in a way that doesn't make that reviewer think that you are blowing off or disregarding right. their comment? Because you don't want to basically say... Okay, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I've explained this correctly. You know, please do some reading and then come back to me and give me your comment. Then they're going to say, sure. "Okay, <laughs> this author did not address any of my changes. Reject." Yeah. And you're going to go from major revision to reject very quickly. Yeah. Right? This is part of the. I'll sometimes call it like social chess, where you you're kind <laughs> of playing that game of, all right, how do I work with this individual? And what can be strange then too is sometimes it's like a one of those two-way mirrors where they mm-hmm. may know who you are because they may yeah. see the author's yeah. name on the paper. Yeah. You have no idea who you're working with, right? Yep. So all of the, the, the intensity of the words and the tone behind the words and the personality behind the you don't know who, who's writing this. Yep. So you can read some of these words and say, man, this is a scathing review. And they may say, no, this is just not true. Just change, you know, and it may be very yeah, right, matter right, right. of fact. And so a lot of that, is tough. And so I still don't know that I have a standard process. Each time I do kind of what you said, start by reading all of it, try to understand the overarching feel of the message Mm -hmm. as much as you can extract that from the writing there. And then kind of go with, okay, if this is the feel, what is it likely they are seeking here? And what can I compromise on to acquiesce to their needs without compromising the underlying integrity of what I'm trying to claim? And I think sometimes it can be challenging um, because oftentimes reviewers, they don't necessarily come from the same country as you're in, right? So, um, you know, we don't, we may not get reviewers from the U.S. We may get, you know, reviewers from from Europe or from Australia or or anywhere, right? All over the place. Um, And so there's different, um, let's say, communication that they communicate in different ways, depending on kind of where you are. Mm -hmm. Um, and English may not be, you know, their first language. 
And so you may read something and the comment seems, oh my gosh, this is super negative or it's very blunt or to the point. And that may not be the reviewer's intention at all, right? right? Or the converse, like it seems really nice and they're being very polite with it, but, and it seems like a suggestion, but then if you don't do it, then they are, you know, much more stern on the next one thinking that you, you sort of, you know, ignored their feedback. Yeah. When I'm, when I'm a reviewer, I've now started doing this just because I, 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 I wish more would do it for mine. I'll give an overarching statement at the end where I'll say, generally, this is an ex- excellent paper. I do have major concerns, but they are fixable, right? And I'll try to highlight, here's the thread you ought to be seeing, just just to hopefully take away some of the guesswork in that. Because I actually think it's in the reviewer's interest to have that level of transparency too. If it's really not a good paper and there's nothing they can do, then say that, right? Then just reject right. it. Don't don't right. give a disingenuous, I guess you could revise this. Similarly, if it looks like here's a ton of comments, but but one consistent thread through the paper, if you tie it back to that, these all go away. Okay, well, then that's also good to know. Um, if they don't provide that, though, yeah, it becomes a real guessing game. Yeah. You, you want to talk, you know, less precise comments? I had someone tell me, you know, basically the comment was something like, this paragraph is weak. Or something to that oh. effect, and I'm like, okay, what does that mean? I don't weak in what way? Yeah, like you got to be, you got to help me somewhere here, right? Like I don't know what that means, and so it's basically just me as a guessing game in terms of how I could maybe read it and think that it would be weak, and hope that that's what the reviewer thought when they thought it was weak. I mean, I I don't know at that point. Like that's. Kind just of, be like, I, I've resubmitted this paragraph in all caps. I trust this has strengthened it. I don't know. Yeah. Is this stronger for you? <laughs> this is all I've caps. added exclamation points. Yeah, I don't right. know. Every sentence just has an exclamation. <laughs> Every place I've done find and replace period with exclamation marks. Is that better? I don't I don't know. And so that kind of feedback is, is yeah. very frustrating. But. Sure. Yeah. The, the one other thing that I would say that I've kind of learned through through making mistakes, and I've also observed through newer students... I think when you get the feedback and what you do with it, which is kind of where we're wrapping up here, there is can be a tendency to push back on everything because you've put in so many hours to the paper and it means so much to you and this is the yep. best thing you've ever done and it's just, it means everything. Or you're getting ready for your PhD defense and you think defense, I got to defend, I got to defend. Look, for a lot of these things, the comments they're giving are not mean-spirited, right? None of us are that important that all these anonymous reviewers are like, oh, let's sink their case. In most cases, they're meaning them in very constructive spirits. So I find myself saying as much as I can, just take the feedback, right? If it's something that you say, look, this isn't something that's going to compromise my study, I'm fine with it, take the feedback. Even if you say... I don't know if I really would have liked to say it in those terms. If it clarifies it to them, take the feedback, right? Yeah. I think this is something that um, when I started and I still see when students are starting, there is this tendency to push back on everything. Yeah. I try whenever I can to make that a last resort. Yeah. And, and even if it's, you know, there's nothing you can do, even if they're mentioning, you know, stuff that they wish you would have done. And I'm uh, yeah. like, okay, that's, that's not this study. That's not okay. this study, right. Like, you can acknowledge it in the limitations of the study or that's right. in future work and sure. say, hey, you know, we didn't have a chance to look at these other factors because, you know, we were, we were specifically focused on this type, but these definitely will impact, you know, project performance. And so, you know, we encourage other researchers to incorporate those in the analysis the next time. And so you can still meet the reviewer halfway, even if, you know, you can't physically accommodate this as if they wish you did something else. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I feel good. 
I feel like we vented some of our uh, our failures here. I feel like me more than you today. I think I win in the number. Uh, your desk rejects are wild. Well, you know, I think the problem. Maybe I do more of like cross disciplinary work. I think you I think you take a lot of shots. Maybe I, I'm I'm so much more like you know. You're a wordsmither. Careful, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, hopefully you all as listeners got something out of this. Maybe you avoid some of the mistakes that we made. Um, and if you don't, well, then you're in good company, and we can all uh, laugh about it when we return to conference travel and all that good stuff, and get to see one another again. So. <laughs> Thanks, as always, for joining us. Hopefully you got something out of this. We will catch you on the next episode of Prophet's Error.